This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, a special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, on this Sunday, well, Friday morning, but we're pretending it's Sunday, because we can pretend it's Sunday. Theatre of the mind, dude. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me is Dr. Anirban Mahanti. G'day, Doc. G'day, Captain. How are you? Mate, I'm as good as I was when we finished the last podcast two days ago, or in radio time, about 30 seconds. Mm. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty... I like, we love Marbag, don't we? I don't like you. Next time you've got to tell me beforehand, I'm going to get two bottles of water <laughs> instead of one. And, and today, see, so you don't even have your Coke Zero. Oh, mate, tell you What's what. What's going on? I'm struggling. I'm going to keep it up. Vibe is interesting, as Richie Benno would say, at least via the guys of the 12th man. Yes, welcome back. Shouldn't really do that. All right. <laughs> We've got a lot of mailbag to get through, mate. This is all mailbag all the time. If you don't care about what your fellow listeners care about, then you can switch off now and come back on Tuesday for money hacks. If you do care, maybe you've got you've asked us a question or maybe you just care about what other people are asking about. That's what I love about mailbag, mate. There's The politicians have this rule that if you get a letter from a constituent, then probably a thousand other people think the same thing. And I reckon, we hope, that's the same with mailbag. Not only does it give us a chance to answer some specific questions, but share a bit of investing kind of education and goodness and just thoughts around it, which hopefully help other people as well. I'm a bit disappointed right now. Oh, dear. We started on a downer. No, because you've just You were in compa- fine form last week. Well, but just because you've compared us to politicians. <laughs> like, pick something else. Like... Compare me to a policeman. So are you, are you are you Scott Morrison or are you Anthony Albanese in this in this partnership here? I'm neither. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather be a cop. <laughs> I want to be a cop here. Yeah. I don't want to be. Personally, a police officer carries a jail term. I'm pretty sure. So you do that. I'm going to be a politician just because I want to stay out of jail. Uh, but I do understand your point. So if you, if, if the <laughs> I am not being Scott. <laughs> I'm not, not not that Scott. <laughs> Well, let's let's we'll edit that out, um, <laughs> and we'll place it with. Hey, so radio station gets one letter. They think no. Anyway, we we'll just move on. <laughs> yeah. That's All right. First question, mate, comes from speaking of Scott. First question comes from Scott Hunter on. I think this was Facebook based on the copy-paste I've done here. We copy and paste into a document so we can keep track of all the different questions from all the different socials. And I think this one's from Facebook. Scott says, "Hi guys, a question for your podcast." Now, Scott doesn't start with any praise or. You know, kind of salutations. And- yeah, I know. And I'm, I'm really confused about that Scott, this Scott, that Scott, this Scott. And I mean, you know, I'm like in... I'm this in- is not ScoMo for the record, if anyone's wondering. This is yeah. not ScoMo for free financial advice. <laughs> happy to provide it, Scott, if you're listening. And look, Scott Morrison's well, got to listen, doesn't he? I'm very happy to provide What else would Scott Morrison listen to on a Sunday rather than monthly full money? I can also provide policy advice. <laughs> <laughs> we give it free here at Monthly Full Money. Fully free. Come come for the financial education, stay for the political policies. <laughs> All right. Mate, question from Scott. Again, Scott, you would have been nice if you said some nice things about us. I'm not saying we have to. I'm just saying, you know, yeah, people I, too. I mean, you know, yeah. We have fragile egos that need stroking. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Quick question. He says, I would like to know your thoughts on the Plato Income Maximizer. PL8 is the code. Thanks, Scott. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And your simple answer is? My simple answer to Scott, unfortunately, Scott, you know, mate, the, my problem is I don't do income. <laughs> so, I actually have no idea how, about this Plato income. You don't do maximum. income. That's good. I'll let the boss know. We can uh, just stop the paycheck, shall we? No, for income, you talk to our income expert, Ed Vesley. Oh, now that's a bit of a tease because we might have Ed with us next week. Well, that's what you know. The income expert can talk about the income. He knows everything about income. Fascinating. Uh, I'm going to talk. I don't know a lot about Plato specifically. It's a relatively new listed fund. I'm going to talk broadly, though, about income. I have a – here's another shameless plug, Matt. It wasn't actually intentional, but uh, since we got this question, I wrote an article for Money Magazine, which is coming out in, I think, about a month or so. So the 
December issue, I think it might be November, December issue of Money Magazine. And I actually talk about income stocks specifically, people looking for income. So if you are interested in income, have a look at that. Um, Scott, though, broadly some thoughts. So I don't know a lot about Plato. I don't have a view on it. And frankly, I'd rather talk generically rather than rather pretend I have a, a well-informed view because simply we don't do any favours for anybody if we make up some stuff and kind of have half-back thoughts. My general view on income is you want to be really, really careful about structured income products because here's the thing. If you structure an income product, the product manufacturer, as they call it in the trade, and that probably gives away exactly what you want to think about it as rather than someone doing you a favor, is putting together something to try and make some fees. So the first thing is any income product is put together to earn fees from the provider. That's the first thing. Second thing is you want to be very careful about how the product is structured. Now, I, we have a product at, fun enough, product, we have a service at, at Motley Fool called uh, Everlasting Income. We don't offer the best yield in the market on that product, right? And very specifically. So we could go out there and say, we could we could actually give people, man, I reckon if we tried, we could probably offer a yield of what, 7%, I reckon? If we kind mm-hmm. of if we mm-hmm. kind of selectively chose the high yielding kind of crap stocks that are high yielding because frankly the share prices are low because they're dodgy businesses, or if we use complex derivative trading strategies or something else, we could probably juice up to about seven percent income. Now we could do that, but we haven't. And we chose not to. And frankly, by the way, the boss would be happier if I did because we could sell more of them. If we could go out with a headline of "Hey, seven seven and a half percent income, come here buy our service," people will love it, right? We the service is about four and a half percent average yield, I think, at the moment, plus franking credits. Um, so you know, decently below that. The reason is because we've built a portfolio we feel really, really great about our members holding for the long term. And if you are buying an income product, either there's probably derivative strategies being used, so they're selling options or writing puts or calling butterfly iron butterflies or something, whatever the options. Come on, come on, don't don't disabuse my options. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying that you know these aren't these aren't vanilla income products, right? These people think about income, they think about you know um, solid businesses paying regular dividends. But some of these products are actually built out of complex trading strategies, which frankly can go against you. They may not, but they can. I've seen to be mindful of that. The other thing is they often have an over reliance on the high yielding stocks that, as I said, aren't necessarily the highest quality in the world. In Everlasting Income, we've got two bank stocks that make up no more than about six and a half, seven percent. I think, Doc, maybe more than that. I can't remember. Uh, oh, so we've got Macquarie as well, actually. So, the two, but the two traditional banks about. Six or seven percent total. Compare that to the ASX, where thirty-five or forty percent of the market is financials and most income funds, where they have seventy percent financials because the banks are paying the highest yields. Um, that's not diversification, right? That's not safe. That's not good for anybody. Particularly, um, it's just riskier than than they otherwise may appear. I'm not suggesting anyone's misleading anybody. I'm not suggesting anyone's doing the wrong thing necessarily. Just be a bit careful about what's under the hood. So, Plato, no view. But as you're thinking about buying income stuff off the shelf. Just be thoughtful about how the portfolio is together, put together, what risks you're taking. Some will remember, I don't want to necessarily draw a hard link here, but back in the day, a state mortgage for the older ones among us um, was a, a mortgage income trust. It went broke because it just simply wasn't able to pay out the distributions that it offered. And it was one of those things that was offering really great yield. And again, I, I don't want to cast aspersions over that because frankly, I don't need to go to court for anybody. Um, but generally speaking, you know, these things can go badly if they're not conservatively put together. So just be just be a little bit careful of high yields. Um, there's no free lunch in anything. And so if you're getting a high yield, assume that there are either visible or maybe less visible risks that you might well be taking. I would personally rather have a slightly lower income, but a slightly more stable and more secure, maybe even significantly more stable and more secure portfolio to go with it. Any more on that, mate? No, mate. No, I think that's, that's that covers it. Beautiful. Let's move on. Got a question from Ben, also on Facebook. It's Facebook. The Motley Fool Australia on Facebook. Follow us, like us, send us a message. G'day, Scott and Doc. Thanks for the fantastic podcast and rants. See, that's better. <laughs> see, see, Scott, Ben knows what he's talking about. Ben is, without any prodding from us, without any requests, without any commentary about whether, in fact, we need or like 
Our ego's being stroked. Ben just chose out of the goodness of his heart to tell us nice things, and that's lovely. Thank you, Ben. He says, I have recently signed up to Doc's EO, Extreme Opportunity Service, and I know the focus, as always, is long-term, three to five years plus, and the show seems to focus on stock picking. Yes and yes. My concern is, as someone who doesn't check his portfolio daily, I don't want to get too excited every time Trump makes things drop. What are your key triggers to get out of the stock? noting you don't subscribe to a stop-loss style, and we definitely don't. Is it company news, a falling share price, a poor report, reaching a target? Thanks for any assistance and full on. Ben, you finished in style, mate. So great start, great finish, and wonderful question in between. You know exactly what we like. Doc, tell us, I'll ask you, because he hmm. he's an EO member, so extreme opportunities, you can join EO. If you join us at fool.com.au forward slash triple M, you will subscribe to our mailing list of some thoughts from me and some marketing material from The Fool. One of those will be semi-regularly offer to join Doc's Extreme Opportunities Service and my Share Advisor Service. But if you want to join, that's the best way to do it. You get the best price that way, by the way. Um, Doc, tell me, what are the triggers? He, ben doesn't want to watch his portfolio all the time. As a professional full-time investor, what are your triggers when it comes to selling a stock? Yeah, so good, good day, Ben, and uh, you know, welcome to Extreme Opportunities. Um, so that's great you have signed up. In 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 a very simple world, I guess you know, it, and I'm I'm horribly simplifying, but sometimes you know, <laughs> simplification is actually useful. Um, like I mean, for the, every buy recommendation that, for example, that we put out on um, Extreme Opportunities, we would say you know, th- these this is the thesis, right? And the thesis would be A, B, C, and D is mm-hmm. the things we are thinking about, and these are the things how we think it may pan out. Now, you know, we think it's going to pan out like that. It often exactly never, it actually never exactly follows that path, right? You know, because, you know, again, it's otherwise we'd be like soothsayers knowing exactly how things are going to turn out. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we, we think based on what's going on, what may happen. Mm. And based on that, we make some assumptions and we think there are different possibilities. But And then we watch how the company is executing to that. And we sort of, you know, rethink how our thesis is progressing. As long as mm. broadly the thesis is on track, we don't consider selling. Right? Okay. Um, I mean, of course, if the price gets too far ahead and then we think it's, you know, overvalued, you know, you know, wildly overvalued. Again, the problem with, with valuation there, too, is that you can you can value it. But you might, you know, if you if you think some stock is like worth $10, but it's selling for $12, I mean, she's mm. you change some assumptions and it could be worth $12, right? So um, it's really hard in those cases to, you know, make um, make a decision. Uh, on on sort of the margin, yes. If something is like you know, you think it's worth like ten dollars, but it's now selling for like fifty or like you know forty, like you know, it's it's kind of obvious. If something is obvious, we, again, and nothing is that obvious actually. That you know, most of the time, there are rare cases in which things are obvious. Mm. So in most cases, if the thesis is track on track, growth is happening, we're going to stick to it, and we're just going to you know own the stock. Now, when would you sell? You know, in most of our recommendations, we have a section called you know uh, risks and when we would sell, and yep. typically that would outline. And it's a pretty standard thing that we do with the Motley Fool, we like to uh, outline how, what are sort of the key things we think in mm. which the this particular thesis could break, mm-hmm. right? Which could be anywhere from, you know, debt that a company has and its inability to pay that debt or, you know, maybe a, you know, geopolitical thing or could be recession or could be some competition or mm. could just be something else completely that, you know... Inability to very, grow at expected rates. Yeah. And new contracts, new deals, new research breakthroughs. New research breakthroughs, you know, some company-specific, you know, or if your thesis was that, you know, your thesis was that if this and this happens, and mm. this has happened mm. a couple of times on, on, on extreme opportunities, like we had a company where we expected two things. If one of those happened, mm. it would be good. If 
the other thing happened, it'll be great. But you know, sometimes what happens, none of them happen. That is really bad, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and so when you start realizing that, you know, the thesis is faltering, uh, that's the point at which I think you sell, right? And mm. and, and finally, I'll make this point of, uh, you know, and um, I tend to not sell very quickly. I'm, 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 I may be a little faster than, and, uh, than, mm. and than Scott is. Scott tends to hold on for long. And then there's a reason behind it. The, the, the problem really is, it is um, it is very hard mm. to precisely make a determination when some bad news comes. So then the reason for that is when the bad news comes and the stock stock price often reacts and often stock price reacts really um, in a mm. in a sharp fashion, right? <laughs> right and yeah. then what happens is, well, the the sort of the the news is baked in, and sometimes it's actually mm. overbaked, mm. right? Um, so uh, you know, I, I just think you know, if something, if a company said something, it didn't do it once, okay, <laughs> it said something and didn't do it again, uh, it's a yellow flag, and maybe three for me is like you know, three strikes and you're out kind of thing. Uh, for growth companies, is sort of the rule that I tend to follow, but you know, it's, mm. there's no such there's. All rules are meant to be broken. In is is sort of my way of thinking about it. So it makes very specific judgment. So I know this is not a specific answer, because there is no because for every situation, every company is different. Mm. But yeah, I, I do watch you know at a higher level growth the object you know the growth panning out and sort of the various levers that the company has are they mm. actually executing on that? And if they if I see things faltering, then I would sell. Nice. I'm not going to have much more to that. I think Doc's covered it nicely, other than to say we don't do stop losses because largely share price movements can be more opportunities than risks, and we don't want to be arbitrarily dumped out of a stock just because a share price moves. Where It's much better and, frankly, more profitable in our experience to make those decisions independent of short-term share price movements, and particularly arbitrary movements where the sale is predetermined rather than actually choosing for ourselves. I would say that you know stop losses in this world of tweeting it's very dangerous. <laughs> Mate, that is a very, very good summary. Hey, next question was from Adam. After the break. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Adam asks, G'day, Scott and Doc. Firstly, and of course, thanks for the great podcast and services. I have been a fool since Friday the 7th of August 2015. Love the precision. I don't know when I was a fool from. October 1998 from memory, but I can't remember the day. You? No, I can remember like the month. It's actually not, you know, September 2010 or actually even, I can't remember, 2010, 2011. I can't even remember. There we go. He says, uh, since Friday 7th of August 2011 and has been the best financial decision I've made. How good is that? It's awesome. That makes us feel good. We're doing some good. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate it, mate. Uh, he says, I've also listened to all your podcasts and enjoyed the level-headed thinking. Must be someone else's podcast, I assume. No, no I'm very level-headed here. <laughs> yeah, very level-headed. I, I tipped the thing over. Uh, he says, it helps me stay on top of it all. I have a question you might answer in your podcast, if I'm lucky in brackets. Guess what, Adam? Your lucky day. Uh, unfortunately, Matt, yeah, you might want to be lucky enough to win Lotto or to you know marry a wonderful bloke or lady. And unfortunately, your luck has come to having your question answered on our podcast. So yeah, we can't all be lucky. Uh, he said, I've recently stopped working at the ripe old age of 32 to go to university full-time. I love that. This has made my portfolio has gone from regular contributions each month to now being completely on its own for a while. I have enough saved on the side along with part-time work that I don't need to touch the invested money while I'm studying for four years. Good man. But I am wondering if there's anything I should do differently now that I do not contribute regular money into it other than monitoring it. It feels a bit strange or lazy not actively putting money into it and just letting it sit there. 
Thanks to you and the, and the doc for the content, Adam. So, mate, Adam's been contributing for probably a decent amount of time for Look, He's a good in, studious investor. He's also a good studious student, which is why he's going to go and do some work at uni. In the meantime, the portfolio is sitting there with no new money coming in. How should he consider the portfolio now? Frankly, should it be any different? Or if it is, how would it be different from when he was actively adding cash to it? Well, that's a good question, actually, and it's a hard one. Isn't uh, it? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, at a very high level, this should be nothing really different, right? Mm-hmm. In the sense that, well, you still have your time horizon, which is the same, assuming that you don't need this money, which mm. I'm just making the assumption, but if that's mm. the case, then there's, you know, just you just think of this as the pot of money that you've got that's invested in some stocks. You look at the thesis periodically, look at the companies, if they're doing the thing, then you keep it. If you If you think that, you know... I mean, one thing you can consider, and, and this, you know, you, you've got to be a bit careful with this, is that you've got a pot of money that's fixed now in some sense. It's mm. like, it's a situation that people face typically at retirement, right? Yeah, but you've taken yeah. a break. Um, and in this case, Adam, what I would say is that you could, you could, you maybe want to think about maybe on a yearly basis or something like that, you know, are the stocks invested in the best companies mm. that, you know, best companies for you in terms of, you know, whatever your objectives are, growth and so on and so forth. Um, if that's not the case, then you might look to, you know, move some money to your best ideas. So basically, mm. invest in your best ideas. And if you're already investing in your best ideas, you pretty much, you know, just monitor them and you're, you're done. And again, you know, when I'm saying that, I don't mean, you know, if you think that you want to make some changes, I personally wouldn't uh, like I personally don't make drastic changes right away. You know, like I, I tend to make changes a little slowly because that's uh, often better because, you know, you make drastic changes. What happens really is that, you know, probably didn't spend enough time thinking through, um, y- you know, the pros and cons. And often, you know, you have to also, we also have to realize that, you know, our ability to um, judge what is 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 good mm. uh, versus what is mediocre might, you know, we might be only right in that say six out of 10 times, right? Mm. And so if you make too many decisions, what happens <laughs> yeah, right, is right. You, the, your probability of success actually goes down. Because well, you're going to be right about the sell and then right again about the buyer, yeah, right? Like it is, actually doubles the degree of difficulty to some. It's not yeah. quite double, but that, that kind of idea of you get two decisions. If you're adding a thousand bucks to a portfolio, you've got to buy one stock and your best idea. Yeah. You've got to try and find a thousand from somewhere else to yeah. add to that stock. You've got to be right that the stock you're selling isn't going to go on to deliver good wins. Yeah. And you've got to be right about the one you're buying. Yeah, which, which really makes it tricky. But, but right, you know, right. but again, I mean, you know, which is why I said that, you know, maybe on like a <laughs> yearly basis is when you sort of, you know, yeah, think like about that. it. You know, don't, it's something that you don't want to uh, fuss about too much, mm-hmm. I think. That, that's what I, you know, I would suggest. I like it. I like it. Um, I think that's great advice, mate. I would probably add to that a couple of things. First is, it's always easier when you're adding more money, right? Because there's no, as you say, sell decision. There's also no tax implication of adding more money, at least in, at the point of adding. Mm. When you're selling, you've got to kind of, there's a couple of things going on, mm. right? You are paying two lots of brokerage. You're making two decisions. And you're probably, if you've made some money, make, incurring some capital gains tax as well. Mm. And I would just, I would, I would probably counsel you against overactivity, exactly the way Doc is, but because if you're selling... Let's say let's say you sell hundred bucks worth of shares. You're probably going to have to pay if you've done well 15, 20 bucks worth of tax on that. Now, if you do that um, at a capital gains tax level, assuming you're paying capital gains tax, it may be in super or something else. Um, but if you are paying capital gains tax on that, you've kind of got to, you, your eighty dollars you left over with. It's got to go. It's got to do twenty five percent more work just to get back to the hundred bucks and then get some gains from there. So each time you sell, if you're paying tax. It just, it just makes that mountain a little bit harder to climb. Now, you should absolutely sell. We'd never, ever, ever say do anything for tax reasons. If you've got a crap company or a company that seems overvalued or you've got a much, much better idea, then absolutely sell and pay the tax, right? If you if the 80 is going to be 50 at some point, then sell now. Or if you can reinvest the 80 and turn it into 160, well, of course, do that now. Um, but, you know, we very rarely have that degree of insight. So 
I would say, as Doc said, probably, yeah, six monthly annually check for repositioning broadly, but also keep a little bit of a closer eye on the portfolio if stuff starts to go bad. So the reinvesting bit, the kind of rebalancing bit Doc's talking about, I think that's, that's fine to do on schedule. I would just keep half an eye on the stocks just to make sure you feel good about the direction of those companies. I wouldn't necessarily want to leave it a year if company X started to go bad all of a sudden or something came out that you want to be aware of. Um, but other than that, just try as much as you can. Um, you're used to adding money, so you're used to kind of being active to some degree. Hopefully not a trader, but actively adding. Um, just maybe try and stop yourself um, getting too too overexcited or feeling like you need to do something. Sometimes, what's the old, the old line? I can't remember. One of the one of the philosophers says that all man's problems stem from their inability to sit in a room quietly alone. Um, I think you know if you can, if you master that while you're not working, that's probably the best way to go. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The next question is from Paul, mate. Now, you haven't seen this one. <laughs> I need to apologize to you because we are this – is, this is real time, mate. This is live. This is, this is real and exciting and all sorts of fun stuff. So Paul threw a question at us on the socials. This one came through on Twitter, uh, and it came through literally just uh, while we were recording our last podcast, actually, mate. So it's not a well, – it's, it's actually a really challenging question, but it's not a difficult one for you to get your head around, so I'm pretty comfortable. Paul says, Hi, Scott and Doc. I'm loving your podcasts. The two of you are very informative, interesting, educational, and entertaining. I'm sure he didn't say that because we said he had to. He just thought he would no, share no, it with us. No, this is just genuine press. So informative, interesting, educational, entertaining. That's four. Is it two each? Do you reckon which two are you? I'll take all of them. <laughs> which one do I get? The intro and the exit? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, just read the, I just read the questions, Paul. <laughs> uh, he says, I'm a Motley Fool subscriber as well. Excellent. Thank you. Here's the challenge, mate. The challenge is actually for me personally because it's um, some of my stocks. Is I have to query why in the last few months... Your recommendations are all at all-time highs or near two. Why didn't they come through as buys when the stocks themselves were substantially cheaper? He mentions a couple of recommendations. I probably will not mention them because, you know, don't be giving some stuff away, but maybe the last four, four recs in a row. He says, uh, blah, blah, I don't know if you, I am sure they are great long-term investments, but I would much rather a cheaper entry price than close to all-time highs. Thank you both. Full on. Now, he asked about me, so I'm going to give you your first shot at me. Uh, <laughs> the last four recommendations have been around near at close to all-time highs. Um, there was a tech company there. There was a consumer goods company. There was an ETF. They're the three he mentions. Um, they were all at or near all-time highs. He's absolutely right. Am I an idiot or is Paul right or am I right? What's going well, on? You, you know, why didn't you find them early? <laughs> Well, that's his question, right? It's fair. It's why why didn't you find them last year or you the year before me. or that's know, fair. the year before? So yeah, uh, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> well, well, I mean that, that's exactly Paul's question, right? It's a fair one, right? Conceptually, if if stock is fifteen dollars now and it was ten dollars a year ago, well, Jesus, dude, why didn't you buy it a year ago? What yeah, help help Paul. Help me. Yeah. So, number one would be that you know a year ago when you know somebody's looking at stocks, they might have had other opportunities that looked better at that time now maybe it hasn't panned out like that i don't know mm -hmm. but i mean um and and then also you have to remember that you know maybe a year back or you know two years back mm -hmm. um you know the other options maybe had brighter future mm -hmm. better price and so on so there's always at any given point in time when especially for our services when we're picking stocks i think um there are choices to be made, right? And so you're choosing from, I guess, a subset, mm -hmm. of, you know, of ideas that you like, and you, you're giving them the best idea. And so the, it happened that at those times, some idea was better, mm -hmm. if even if this idea was on the list. That's number one. 
Uh, this happens to me all the time. <laughs> Number two is, I mean, even if it's an all-time high, it, I mean, this is, is a, uh, there's a bit of an anchoring magic going on here, right? So we're anchoring to the price, the past price, and we're thinking about um, the past price as a basis uh, for deciding, well, it's expensive. It's, it, it, it's no, I mean, I, I, know, I know that he's not saying that, but I mean, there's, that, there's this implication that, you know, it was a good value at that point. Maybe, you know, it was a good value then, and maybe it's a good value even now. Um, while it had been good to buy it then, um, nobody knows really how the shares are going to do over, a, say, you know, six months or two years. And, and actually, it's mm-hmm. very hard to even predict how the shares are going to do over over the long term. You can only say, you know, that geez, there's a certain probability of some, some things happening. Right. So on, on that basis, you um, if the price is good and the opportunity still is good, then, you know, the price today really is the price today. And if the price is fair, then it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the other aspect. Um, uh, to consider. So, I mean, this happens quite a bit. And then the final thing is that, you know, if a company actually is going to deliver on any thesis and it's going to be much bigger than it is today, mm. um, you know, like uh, ultimately to hit new highs, you're going to cross over the current all-time yeah. highs, yeah. right? So highs as such is is not really, should not really be a problem because mm. in fact, the reverse is, is sometimes a problem. <laughs> if, you, if you pick something that's going down and if it's going down for a good reason, then you know, you're just basically, you know, uh, mm. making sure that you're going to get your hands bloodied because you're trying to catch something that's basically going to go down further because it's just not working. Right. Um, so, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I would, I happily buy things that, you know, I buy high and buy higher largely because it's a, it's a proof of, so that the last point would be that, Maybe at that point, it, you know, I'm just making a fictitious example. Maybe <laughs> six months ago, the price was lower, but there was less certainty. Today, or six months back or one year after, the price is higher, but there's more certainty. So you're right. paying for, you're paying up more, but you're removing uncertainty. And therefore, you're probably, in some sense, improving your odds of success. So it depends on what you're really trying to do. If you're trying to improve your odds of success and you want a certain amount of strike rate, what I mean by strike rate is the, the stocks that on average are going to, you know, or the stocks that are going to beat the market in that sense. Um, and mm. if, if your target is to have sort of, you know, those stocks on average, you maybe you want to be right six or seven times. If that's the case, then you want more certainty, and often more certainty means that you're going to be paying up for things. So mm. those are the sort of the considerations. Yep, I, I I will I will go to my own defence slightly. I can't disagree with anything you just said, mate. A um, couple of things, Paul. So the first is, as, as Doctor already said, we can only pick the best ideas at whatever period of time we think they're the best ideas, and through circumstances, either there were other better ideas at the time, or either literally the company itself that I recommended back, say, pick 12 months ago, just pick a name, pick a date. Um, the company I recommended that day was probably, I thought, better than the business I'm recommending today, at least at the then prices of both companies. So, you know, things have moved since. Um, it may well be in some cases that the uh, the business thesis to Doc's point has played out better and so there's more opportunity. Um, and again, the other thing is in a, in a rising market, and we have, I mean, the ASX is up 18% since December, I think, mate, or January, so January 1-ish. So, you know, the ASX up a lot. Like, that's a that's a year and a half, almost two years worth of gains in the space of 10 months, which is pretty good. Um, most things are up, right? <laughs> and so you, you've got the choice, as you say. Um, you, you know, you can try and catch the falling knife. You can try and buy stuff that's cheaper now than it was in the past. That can be great. If you find a, a, a great business beaten down, as Buffett talks about, a business on the operating table, a quality business, importantly, on the operating table, that's a great time to buy it, right? If, I, if I'm offered, I don't know, Woolies at 10 bucks, I'll take it. You know, really, really easy decision. Um, now, I wouldn't buy 30 bucks for all these, but at 10 bucks, it's a slam dunk. 
Now, that being said, if you had another business that maybe was on the way out or down or in trouble, so Maya, for example, I could have bought, I could have bought Maya at ever cheaper prices and I would have lost an absolute fortune for our members and, and for ourselves if we'd done that. And so just because it's cheaper or cheaper than it has been um, isn't something to be mindful of. But again, I think, I think the bigger thing to add to Doc's point was just that fact the market's up. Most companies are higher value than they were. Um, and if you're only looking for stuff that's cheaper than it was, that's only one way of investing. And again, Doc's point, if businesses keep getting better, um, so Treasury Wine Estates, I'll, I'll pick one. There was one that, that Paul mentioned. I also, by the way, own shares um, in Treasury. I, you know, it, It's a business that I think is a good business. It's got more expensive over time. Now, it's actually dropped a little bit in the last week and a half because the CEO has resigned. Um, but you know, when we recommended that one as a best buy now, um, that one was simply higher because it's playing out. The, the, the investment thesis is playing out. The market has more confidence in it. We have more confidence in it. And we think if you buy it today, you're in for market beating gains. Now, we may well be wrong. But that, that direction, that approach, that idea is still a really sound one. It, really, the only question isn't so much where it's been, but where it's going. And if we think a business is going to do well in the future, regardless of the price, you should buy it now. If a business is going to do worse in the future, well, it doesn't, there's almost no price that's cheap enough to pay. You always want to be buying a business, a, a quality business, at the best price you can get. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. And this question is from Zach. Zach is a serial question asker, which we like because we get to be serial question answerers. And more importantly, the question was a good one. So Zach says, thanks for answering my question on the podcast. Absolutely nailed it. I wasn't saying that for the sake of it. He says, thank you both so much. Yeah, it's always nice to know we uh, hit the nail on the head, mate. We're not carpenters for nothing, or at least, you know, hypothetically. Anyway, Zach says, I had another question, though. You were talking about shorting. Oh, dear. I got in trouble on Twitter this week for shorts, complaining about shorting. You said it was a business transaction because the shorter pays interest to the original shareholder, which is true. Well, why the hell would a shareholder lend their shares to someone that aims to move the price down? Surely they might make money on the interest, but won't the owners of the shares be worth 30% less when the short sellers are finished and return the shares? Good question. So basically, mate, the, the deal is, as we know, you can lend your shares to shorters and get paid for it. They are, in theory, going to try by means, fair or foul, to get the price down. And if they're successful, haven't you just enabled the shorters? Like, doesn't it, doesn't there, isn't there some, something self-defeating about lending shares to shorters? Why the hell would people do it? So, so the, the interesting mechanism here is that the, uh, the number of things that happen, right? So shares are, for example, if, if shares are held by an institution, mm-hmm. they might be held under some sort of, you know, a trustee relationship, mm-hmm. and then they might be held basically by a bank as a trustee, or the bank can lend it out as long as, you know, the bank is basically, in that case, the investment mm-hmm. bank is making some money in that case, right? <laughs> the, so they... they um, investment banks. Um, uh, brokers. Yep. Brokers, if they are holding your shares, they could mm-hmm. actually lend it out because they will make some money on it. Yep. Some brokers tend to be nice, and they actually pass <laughs> on some of those fees. The, yeah. So some brokers would ask you, can I lend your shares? Do you want to participate in this share lending program? And I will give you some money for it. Yep. Uh, in which case, you can make some money, right. uh, which is you know, which is something for nothing, right? If you're going to hold the shares anyway. Yeah. So, so a lot of longs actually lend out their shares on on uh, you know these are like big holders lend mm. it out because hey, mm. I am long. I don't you know I believe in the thesis, yep. and I'm happy to lend out some shares. So that happens. Um, but in yeah, so a lot yeah, so there are a lot of reasons why um, people now nobody expects. Um, if a long is lending out their shares, they could actually call the shares if they want. 
uh, you know, or withdraw it from the uh, mm-hmm. lending program mm-hmm. um, if the you know if the alleged uh, manipulation, for example, is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sometimes I mean, you know, you might lend it and you might buy more shares in the market because the price has gone. A lot of things can happen, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, and and as long as you're willing to tolerate that volatility, for example, in the middle. So. Mm-hmm. Some reasons. Nice. I'll I'll throw only another thought on top of that. I think Zach, you're you're picking the, you're asking the right question, right? And in this particular circumstance, we've had recent short activity on a couple of companies that are for high flyers, and in those cases, we've seen the share prices fall meaningfully. And you kind of like, why the hell would would longs enable that? And that's absolutely true. It's worth adding though that there are almost every other large company in ASX has some short interest at some point, right? And so the fact that sometimes the short attack that does cause meaningful damage doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a profitable activity for everybody else most of the time. So if you've been lending your BHP shares or Woolies shares or JB Hi-Fi shares or uh, I can't think of any others that particularly come to mind, but basically, you know, those, those ones that are, that are high, have high, what they call short interest, Harvey Norman's another one, um, you know, nothing happened, right, to those shares, or at least nothing nothing driven by the shorters. So if you were happy to lend that out, nothing happens, you get some money, then you're not, you're not worse off. In fact, you're much better off because you're getting the cash. Equally, if you're a shareholder, like, I'm going to use Berkshire, mate, because it's an easy one. My apologies, Doc. I am contractually obliged, as you know, to mention it once a, once a podcast. Um, I kid, of course, but, you know, I like to mention it. You know, I would have, I don't, by the way, but I would happily lend out my Berkshire. I don't plan to sell Berkshire at any point in the next two decades, right? Now, I don't care what happens to the share price in the next two decades either. And even with those short attacks, if the shorters are wrong, right, even with their big falls, the 30% falls, if they're wrong over time, the share price will eventually return back to some sort of approximation of value. If you own them at at price X because you think that value is fair and you should be higher in future, which must be by definition what you're assuming, if it's a volatile ride in the way through, you don't really care unless you have a need to sell those shares at some point or you have a shorter term hypothesis or theory. And if you do, you shouldn't lend them out for shorting. But if you know, I don't, I've never bothered, and I probably don't. I don't like shorting, so I probably wouldn't almost out of principle. But maybe it's costing me money, right? If if, if someone said, "Look, I'll give you five percent a year, four percent a year, whatever the number is, to to, let, to borrow your Berkshire shares," like that's money for Gem. That is seriously, like I'm almost mad not to do it because I don't really care. The shares could halve, the shares could double. I don't care. I'm not selling them anytime soon. Um, I mean, maybe I do in the end, but I'm not planning to. So. If we're going to hold them for 10, 20 years, well, gee, you know, why not make some money? I don't really care what the shorters do in the short term. I'm not not driven by or, or you know, measuring my value by whether the shares are up or down, at least not in any long-term sense. So it's kind of, you know, why, why would you not? And I think at that level, it makes a whole heap of sense for shorters, or for longs to actually do that. Because, hey, if you don't like shorters, you want to make some money from them, then everyone's happy. If, they, if they're silly enough to short Berkshire, knock yourselves out, but I'll take the I'll take your cash in the meantime. Um, I'll happily, happily charge you rent. Um, to, to be short my company that I think you're wrong about. So that's kind of why, now in this circumstance, as you say, Zach, if there was no shorting, then there would be no, probably, case for those big big falls for some of those companies. And I think that's a whole different conversation I have said publicly on Twitter on an email that I would actually ban short selling if I was in charge of ASIC. I was flamed meaningfully on Twitter during the week for saying that. I don't resolve from that, although I don't love the arguments and the name calling, but that's okay. Um, I don't think it's particularly useful in the market. I think people make some... Very basic claims about the fact that it adds some value to the market. I think on the margins it probably does, but I don't think the market is meaningfully uh, underserved without shorting. I think it actually tends to muddy the waters and potentially cause conflicts that maybe we'd be better off without. That being said, the shorters also say, by the way, on the long side, there are still manipulators and pump and dumpers in the market. That's also true, by the way. So I'm not suggesting that longs are always perfect and the shorts are always imperfect, just that I think a more complex market is necessarily better or best for market participants. You want to cool. jump on that bandwagon, Doc? Or you want to avoid that so you don't get flamed on Twitter? Um, I'm short shorts. <laughs> there we go. Motley Fool Money. 
Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Insta question. Instagram is my new favorite question to get. I don't know why. I don't love Instagram. I don't take a lot of photos. I don't take photos of food. I'm not into Instagram. We might Insta something. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a photo of us while we're talking and real-time Instagram it. So when you see this on Instagram, this, you'll know Doc and I were actually doing this live. Doc's now looking at me like I'm an idiot. I'm going to ask the question. I'm going to get you to answer it. And while you're answering, I'm going to take a photo of us. And I'm going to Instagram it live because, you know, this is... As long as you're sure my Apple computer, it's okay. <laughs> I'll crop it out. This and I from... refuse to give my photo. <laughs> Can I put my uh, Chromebook in front of it? No. Okay. This is a question from Mark. Back to the serious stuff. Hi, Scott and Doc. Love the podcast. Just starting out investing in shares. Good man, Mark. I have shares in ALT Resources, and they have been capital raising lately. Being new to investing, just unsure how the share price is volatile while raising funds. Keep up the great work. Thanks and full on. Good man, Mark. Now, I'm going to guess, Doc, you're not going to suggest that investing in resource companies is a good idea? No. Why not? Well, because, you know, resource companies, well, number one, if, if it's an explorer, then it's trying to explore and find something that may not exist. Right. That's a huge risk because if they don't find anything, you have nothing to show. Okay, hang on. Uh, stop, stop and smile. Oh. Smile. There we go. Yeah, look at me. Stop. Yeah. All right. Photo taken. That'll yeah. be on Instagram in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, man, this is live. This is real. We're doing this. We're right, doing this live on. and real. Go on. Um, number, number two. <laughs> you actually held up your Apple Watch. I thought I would advertise two devices. Oh, dude, come on. That's, that's I, awesome. <laughs> so we can, we can advertise the Apple Watch. It, the Apple Watch is really awesome. It takes care of your health. All uh, right. We've, that's a, mate, you've, you've successfully managed to tangent us into Apple. Let's move back out of that. Talk, talk about why you don't like resources. Now no, we go back to resources. <laughs> Um, number two is like so, so. I mean, explorers are like you know they're like hit and miss, right? I mean, if they find gold, you are, you are gold. If you didn't find gold, you've basically got a bunch of dirt. Um, and so that's bad. That's pretty bad. Um, and then on the established re- resources companies, I mean, these tend to be really well-run companies, right? In, in the established ones like BHP and you know Rio and so on. Um, the issue really is that they are, you know, price takers. And when I say price takers, it means the price for, say, iron ore is essentially set in the international market. You really, the only thing you can do is you can reduce your cost of output by, you know, using technology, being really smart, by finding the best mine, um, uh, you know, mining uh, methodologies and things like that. But you're still going to get only the price that the market is willing to pay for the iron ore, which would change with demand and supply. Um, so usually what will happen is when, you know, when the demand is, um, you know, not keeping up with supply, um, mm. uh, you know, like when, the, when there's more demand and less supply price goes up, but then a lot of, you know, marginal producers will come online uh, and then the price basically falls. Marginal producers then at that point who, you know, not able to keep up with the lowering of price at that point, basically going to go, you know, either stop producing and things like that. And so it's, it's very cyclical in that sense, right? The price goes up and price goes down. Mm. Um, now the, uh, the good producers though, like when, when I say good producers, like in People like BHP and Rio, they can operate across cycles because they, you know, they would have low cost of operations and you right, know, right. really, really efficient businesses. Um, so these are good businesses, but you really need to understand and a the cycle, which mm, is really mm. hard to understand. Yeah, because cycles have super cycles and things like that. They're impacted by you know, like if there's a country like China, which has got 1.3 billion people, which is like rapidly growing. That is mm-hmm. sometimes that's very hard to understand how that can impact resources demand, right? I mean, it takes a while for people to figure that out. Right, so right. you need to figure that part out. You know, if China reduces its consumption, who else is going to take that consumption up? That's you know, <laughs> that's something. Those are things to think about. Yeah, and and then you need to be. 
you need to have a sense of um, of valuation, right? You know, you should be able to value the company across these different cycles. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, you need to buy these things at the right price. And if you buy the right price, and you know, I'm not really suggesting timing, but you really need to buy at a good price. Mm. And perhaps right, sell right, at a right. good price. So the difference, market timing is kind of trying to work out when the share prices arise. In this case, though, it's less about timing and more about understanding the, the, the kind of commodity price cycles, right? Far more yeah. than the share prices themselves. We're not trying to say, well, the charts say this or no. macroeconomic factors are that or it's under the 180-day moving average. We're saying if you, if you want to buy commodities and make money, you've got to buy at a commodity price and a share price that makes sense relative to the future level of earnings, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think those are sort of broad it's it's hard some people are really specialists in this i don't do this at all because i can't really do it um yeah so i mean if you specialize in this that, that's fine Other, i mean you really need to study the sector really well or you know maybe if somebody works in the sector and then they can they sort of you know are in the thick of this and they can see how the sector is ramping up or ramping down and uh, you know the demand and the supply and you know maybe mm. th- those are people with you know maybe you need some special knowledge so i you know it is really hard which is why i kind of steer steer out steer clear i think it's fair now that's all i kind of agree kind of adding more to that kind of agree more but he asks why is the share price volatile while capital raising is going on now we don't follow this company in particular mm. but maybe you can just give us some color as to i hate that phrase sorry that's a colorist analyst Thank you, Tim. Give us give us some thoughts as to why a share price might be volatile while capital raising is going on. Yeah, so when a capital raising is going on, first of all, basically that means some dilution is going to happen, right? And mm. typically capital raising is associated with some promise that that capital is going to be used in a useful way, yep. right? Um, so the volatility is kind of, you know, the share price probably moves in the direction of the proposed price for you know, capital raise mm. n- near about that depends on how the capital raise is being done. That is going to be deciding, uh, you know, is it is it a share placement plan? Is it an institutional placement <laughs> plan? Is it a rights issue? Right. Um, are existing, you know, uh, how many of existing people are likely to take <laughs> up and all those sentimental issues. Yeah. Basically, you're raising capital to do something which maybe is proven, maybe is unproven, you know, maybe. So mm. it re- it, I think it creates a level of uncertainty. Um, often, most of the price actually moves backwards because of you know the dilution effect and the additional uncertainty the things you know there's only there are very few circumstances in which um if you're doing a capital raising uh, the price actually goes up because it materially changes the dynamic of the company or people mm. think it changes material the dynamics <laughs> yeah, of the company right. um you know it's right. you know it's thing, you know sometimes like you know when it's yeah so, uh, so so those are the things to think about so, yeah often it's just the fact that you know, mm. there's dilution and there's like uncertainty. Yeah, I think that's right. And this, yeah, th- those two absolutely, particularly with smaller companies too, mate. There's a lot of betting going on. Like, I mean, the market generally is supposed to be a kind of rough live auction estimate of the future, and to some degree, capital raising indicates so much going on, and, and people are trying to basically place their bets around it to see what could possibly happen next. In the perfect word, the other thing is, by the way, when capital's raised, so RFG, different, massively different company, retail food group, raised capital two, three weeks ago. Uh, and the shares were issued a lower price than the final share price because the market actually takes the average of those things. So the shares were 20-ish cents beforehand. They raised capital at 10, I think it was. Mm. So the average share price isn't exactly 15 because not the same number of shares. But, you know, kind of conceptually, it shouldn't fall all the way to that capital raising price because the company's worth something more. Lots and lots of maths goes on in the meantime, and it's been a bit volatile since. So, um, yeah, you should expect it to be volatile. Don't expect the capital raising price to be the new share price. 
um, unless there are things like um, renounceable rights issues and stuff, which we won't go into now. But broadly speaking, don't don't assume a capital raising should give a floor or ceiling or stability to a share price. Yeah. Fair to say? Yeah, I think that's very fair. You did it better than me. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, question from Lindsay on the, what's this one? The Facebook, the book. Hi, Scott and Doc. The Motley Fool Money podcast provides a great investment learning opportunity. And you guys are getting more funnier and more informative by the week. Mission accomplished. Is listening to us backwards, do you reckon? I don't know. Like, I mean, this sounds awesome. Is he drinking uh, while he's listening? I have no idea. <laughs> Let's assume not. Uh, question. BRKB. Now, what, what's Doc? Is that again, man? I- I don't, I don't know. You what know, that, come on. Come I don't on, know. On. I don't know, know anything about stock codes. <laughs> I refuse to know what stock codes. <laughs> BRKB is, of course, the Berkshire Hathaway Class B shares. I own some of those. I should say for full disclosure, but I don't think it's a surprise when you're listening to the podcast that I own them. So I think the disclosure is probably unnecessary, but, but worth doing. I am a happy holder. 50% of my SMSF. Well done. He says, how do you square Warren's investment approach, Warren Buffett, Warren's investment approach in banks and airlines with Berkshire's historic growth achieved and future growth potential. Scott, I know you're a holder, but at the same time, you do not favour banks and airlines. What does Warren know that we don't? I'm loath to ask you, but because I'm supposed to include you in this podcast, I'll give you first shot at this. <laughs> so I don't like airlines. I don't like banks, at least Australian banks, and that's part of the answer. Warren does. And well, historic growth, future growth, last couple of years have been pretty ordinary for Berkshire shareholders. What what what's maybe what's Warren thinking that we're not? Why is why is why are we happy or am I happy to hold Berkshire shares shares when Buffett is doing something different? Okay, so I'll take a stab at this a couple of different. So I actually want to answer the airline part because that I have, I have actually not looked at that. Mm. Um, recently, somebody mentioned uh, some of these banks to me. I actually, had a very quick look. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so, so what does Warren know that I guess you know we? <laughs> so we sort of the reason we we talk about our banks is our banks are basically highly concentrated. Uh, you know, we've got like four big banks, mm. and mm. you know they're very closely tied to property growth and things like that. Um, that, and they're also relatively speaking on a very high multiple mm. relative to the rest of the world. They also got very high returns on equity. So one would think that over time. If things normalize, then there's more downside. So there's there's that, right, and then right, of course right. you've got very high property prices and you know high debt and all those things like that. So, so banks aren't oils ain't oils, as the old Castro had said. Banks aren't banks, right? Australian banks aren't necessarily the same as U.S. banks. Exactly. Yeah. So the U.S. banks actually, strange enough, I did think about buying some banks. Oh, no. <laughs> In fact, some of the banks are no. Buffett owned because some of them actually look cheap. Uh, you, I, I didn't so, know this in advance. You could knock me down with a feather if you said you were considering U.S. banks. I actually did consider wow. because, uh, you know, uh, well, I was going to actually use a derivative instead, but <laughs> so I was going to buy a long right. call uh, right. instead of buying the bank. But, you know, things like Wells Fargo, which I think uh, now I can't buy them, but okay, fine, I can wait. They're not going to go anywhere. <laughs> uh, things like Wells Fargo, actually, some of these are like in a PE of 10, and some of these, you know, are really humongous banks with, with, with really diversified business. So I think... That's one. I think the price probably is the reason why Buffett is buying them. The mm. price actually looks relatively good. Um, th- that's number one. Number two is that he's got too much money and therefore he has to buy. <laughs> he should just give me some. I know how to spend them. Uh-huh. Uh, but you know what he's. I guess he'd buy a Tesla with it. 
I would just buy some cars and boats and stuff. I, I didn't say I'm going to invest his money. I thought I was going to take some nice, of it. Nice, nice. It probably wouldn't make any difference to me. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, you know, he needs to buy liquid, very, very big liquid companies. And, you know, he buys meaningful stake, right? <laughs> so if he wants to buy, you know, like if he needs to put like a couple billion dollars into like a $5 billion company, that's like basically a takeover, right? Which he doesn't want to do. So he, if he <laughs> wants to, if he wants to have like, you know, a substantial amount of money invested in companies, they have to be big and liquid mm. um, in terms of value, which is sort of what he looks for. I think banks yeah. are a good place in the US or at least the couple that I've looked at actually looked interesting. Right. Um, so that, yeah. So, I mean, you know, they're different banks, they're different things. Um, yeah. So, I mean, he knows that and he doesn't invest in tech, which is, I think, a mistake. But um, <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, I mean, yeah, he knows something. <laughs> Definitely. I think that's right. Look, I um, oh, made really good question, Lindsay. So a couple of things going on. The first is Berkshire has been an underperformer share price wise over the last couple of years. Um, that's probably because the stocks at Buffett investing, as you alluded to, Doc, aren't the companies that are making big strides on the market. If you didn't own the big four tech companies, uh, let me go through, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon. He right? now owns both uh, Apple. Well, he Apple does. he owns, he and uh, Amazon, I think, one of his disciples owns. So, well, Buffett, Buffett owns a lot, but of course, yeah. the different different guys made a decision. But yeah, yeah if, you didn't, but if you didn't own those, I mean, they've, they've been the four stocks that have effectively delivered almost all of the S&P's gains right over the last whatever period of time. And so if you're underweight, those very, very hard to beat the market. He's also got $120 billion, I think, at last count of cash doing nothing. Um, you know, in a, in a go-go market, where I've already said the ASX is up 18% this year. I'm not sure about the S&P, but I can't imagine it's too far different from that. Um, you know, when, when growth is in the ascendancy, Buffett underperforms. It's always been the case, and so he's kept doing that. Maybe this is the beginning of, well, not the end, but a, a new normal, and Buffett continues to underperform. Maybe it's more akin to 99, where Buffett was pilloried for two or three years for missing the boat, and then all of a sudden roared back in a, you know, uh, into consideration with just simply the, the old-fashioned style that he engages in, which has been very successful. Nobody knows, but that's part of the reason in terms of the future potential. For me, it's a sleep at night stock. I, you know, if Buffett's, if Buffett's managing a chunk of my portfolio, I'm pretty happy with that, and I'll take it. Um, on top of that, look, in terms of the, the doctor, he done the, a great job with the banks. Um, you know, Australian banks, I think, I, I've never said I don't like US banks. Um, I don't know them particularly well, but I would never say that my caution about Australian banks should be applied to the US or Europe just for the sake of it. It's a very specific Australian issue here where I just don't think house prices can grow enough to make banks a market-beating investment, which is why I don't like them. Um, but that, you know, he owns JP Morgan, which is an investment bank, Wells Fargo, which is a retail bank. Um, you know, much more, it's a very fragmented banking market in the US. Bank of America also, I think. It does, yeah, they're right. Yeah. right. Super fragmented banking market, like super, super fragmented. Um, they've got like thousands of banks over there. It's crazy. Um, and, you know, there's different different mechanics at play, different house price, different debt, all that kind of stuff. So I wouldn't do that. In terms of airlines, look, I, you know, it's, I mean, Buffett may well be right on this one. I may be wrong. But airlines have been a terrible investment for 40 plus years, um, largely because there were too many airlines and too many airlines kept being added to the market. Now, Airlines in the US make, if they've come to, it'd be like Qantas and Virgin here, right? Qantas has been a great investment here, by the way, for the past two, three, four years, largely because they've, they've stopped fighting. <laughs> and if you have some sort of truce where everyone makes a little bit more money because no one else is, you know, cutting out other, other you know, the legs out under other people because, hey, let's not discount airfares. Let's just both put them up and we'll be okay. Now, that's not, that's not an actual agreement that would be illegal. I'm not alleging anything like that for the record. But if you, yeah, if you do a deal, we don't do this. So if you just decide, hey, I'm not, gonna, I'm going to stop fighting with you, and the other guy says, well, okay, I'll stop fighting with you too. Um, again, not directly to each other, but conceptually separately. That can be a very profitable way to go. And as long as there's no additional capacity added to the airline market here or in the US, 
these guys could actually go on to be quite profitable. It's when price competition comes back and capacity addition comes back, if it does, that airlines get really, really ugly. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see if Buffett and Berkshire sold those things at that point if it happens. I think they've seen a turning point, a potential turning point, where capacity addition has fallen to close to zero and prices for airline seats have stabilized. That can be a profitable time. Time will tell whether that's an ongoing thing or not. Um, too hard for me. I, I don't. I don't. Particularly in Australia. Like again, I don't own any US airlines, and I wouldn't avoid the more add to them. I don't know enough about the market there. Australian airlines. I mean, Virgin's been a basket case for a long time. Qantas is doing really well. Does it keep going? Well, actually, it does. If if the airlines stop fighting with each other, will they restart fighting? I kind of think it's probably inevitable, but I've been wrong before. Real money advice from real people, not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Got a question from Ajit. Now, Ajit says, love your podcast, bro. I've never been called bro before on Facebook. Anyway, he says, um, good morning. Why do the various ETFs tracking the same index, for example, the ASX 200, have different prices? Also, how do they manage our money in an ETF? Really good questions, Ajit, and worth well worth asking. Um so we talked about this a little bit before, mate, but there's two ASX 200 index funds. Uh, there's the DOC ETF and the Scott ETF. Yours is 500 bucks and mine's 100 bucks. Is mine really a fifth of the price of yours? No, they're actually relative. I mean, if they're, if they're ETFs, they should be really tracking the market very closely. So it, all, all it means is basically there's a certain amount of money. You have a certain amount of money in, and let's think of this as under... Uh, under that ETF, or mm-hmm. as, you know, mm-hmm. as under that ETF trust, yep. and you have decided that you're going to divide that into some number of units, right? So it's basically units, number of units, total amount of money, and you just if you have if yours is five hundred, you probably got, you know, maybe more money divided across a small mm-hmm. number of units, mm-hmm. which results in a higher price, right? Yep. It's, it's it's basically just the function of how much money is there and how many stock units are there, and that decides what the share, you, you know, what the unit price is in that case, mm-hmm. right? So. Um, yeah, and if it's a, if depending on if the fees are close enough, and if the um, you know if it is if it's doing a good job of tracking the index, which it should, then they should be relatively very very close in terms of their total appreciation over time. Beautiful. Mate, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and add to that by going to my favorite. What's what's our favorite analogy when it comes to prices? Uh, pizza. Yes, here we go. <laughs> Got it in one. Not surprising either. Here's the thing: if I say to you, "Would you how much is a piece of pizza?" You're gonna say, "Well, depends. How big's the piece?" I'm going to say, aha, exactly. Now, we know that, let's say two let's say two pizzas from a Motley Fool Share Advisor recommendation, Domino's. Very good barbecue meat lovers, by the way. Not going to win any awards, but but really, really filling. Quite tasty, too. It's good barbecue sauce. Really good barbecue sauce. Anyway, let's say, let's say two pizzas, right? Now, you and I have a pizza each, Doc, and they cost us, these days from Domino's, well, because they're 10 bucks, because I like my maths to be easy. And I say, do you want a piece of pizza? And you go, yeah. I say, well, how much, you know? I say the piece is five bucks. And you're either going to say five bucks for a piece, that's ridiculous. Or you're going to say five bucks, that's cheap. And it's going to depend on how you watch me cut up the pieces. Now, if I cut the pizza in half, five bucks a piece is about right. Mm-hmm. If I cut the pizza in four and give you into thirds, five bucks is all of a sudden pretty expensive for a piece of pizza, right? Because you know you can get the whole thing for 10. If I'm charging you five bucks a piece, then that's 15 bucks for the whole pizza. Mm-hmm. So it depends on how big the size is. If you've got two ETFs, the Dock ETF and the Scott ETF, as I said, and they're both pizza equivalents. You're going to look at those and say, well, I'm going to pay a dollar for Scott's piece because there's 20 of them. And I'm going to pay, oh, sorry, 50 cents because there's 20 of them, sorry. So Scott's piece is 50 cents each. Doc's pieces, I'm going to pay $2 a piece for Doc's pieces because there's five of them in the in the box. Now, same pizza, same, you know, 
uh, I was going to say taste or style or whatever, but call it what you will, uh, same enjoyment. Um, but the pieces are very differently priced because they're simply different sizes. Same with the ETF, mate. If you've got a, some ETF might have $200 million of funds under management, that one's got $2 billion under management, very different things. And again, how many units are there within that money? Again, very, very different. You should expect from whatever price, though, they move in percentage terms in concert with each other, and that's all that matters. If you have one piece, two pieces, five pieces, depends how big the pieces are, but broadly, if a pizza is going to be double the price in a year's time to really terribly mangle the metaphor, uh, then no matter how much you know, matter how much you cost, how much, how much you pay, and how big the slice, both of those slices will double in price. The starting price is just simply not very relevant. Mm-hmm. Did I torture that one enough? Uh, you made it a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do, uh, mate. The question about how do they manage our funds? It's kind of an, an admin question. I won't go into a whole lot of detail. Just um, I asked the question about you know. He says, well, like, like when I buy, do they create a portfolio from various clients like me? Uh, how is it so cheap? The answer is they simply say, well, you own effectively a, just a very, very small piece of that pie, right? So the fund is so big, um, the fund is $100 worth, you put a dollar in, you own 1% of it. As the fund moves, your share of that fund moves in line with it. Same as a managed fund or frankly, even company shares, it works the same way. Your proportional interest just moves in line with the value of the total asset, in this case, the total fund. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, next question. Probably our last one, I think, for this time. Let's see how we go. Chris on Twitter. Back on the Twitters. I love Twitter. Twitter, Shh, Twitter, Twitter. Yeah, well, you, you, are you having a Twitter break or are you just not very happy at the moment? Oh, I'm, like, you know, with, with Twitter, I think, you know, as long as I'm just short the shorts, I'm fine. <laughs> I think I'm just going to be short shorts. All right. Chris says, have either of you heard of or used navexa.com.au in your portfolio tracking? Can I ask what programs you might use to maintain your portfolio? What would you recommend for someone starting out investing with not much money to spend on tracking? We have asked this question before, so we won't spend super amounts of time on it. Um, I have never heard of Devexor. I guess you haven't either. No. So we won't pass judgment on that one. Um, I would say, by the way, and I have no view on Nevexa. I'm sure they're wonderful people. I would be a little bit careful if I was putting my personal information into a piece of software just to make sure you know who's providing it and how reliable and, and reputable they are. Um I can imagine a scenario where someone might want to, you know, steal your portfolio information by providing some sort of software that the data may not be secure or used well. So I'd just be a little bit careful with anyone you join. And Nexter, I'm sure, is wonderful. As I said, I'd have no no slide on them whatsoever. But for something you haven't heard of, unless you've got a personal recommendation, you know how they're treating your data, just be a little bit careful about what you provide online. Um, mate, portfolio tracking. Um, so I don't do, like, I mean, the only thing I, I, I'm really interested, I, you know, one of the things that I do is I have a spreadsheet or an, a section on numbers, mm-hmm. uh, which is a Apple spreadsheet. Let me make that clear. Oh, uh, I just have, I just, I just mentioned, I just keep track of how many shares of a company I own. Yep. And what is the current, you know, I just have some other stat, like, you know, what's the market cap and things like that. And what's, you know, maybe some data about you know, the prices, but I, I don't actually keep any data on Mm-hmm. On that one, or mm-hmm. of my buy prices, so I don't want to be anchored to what my buy price was. I might, I might have a rough idea, but mm-hmm. I might. Uh, and so I just look at the total value, and I look at you know essentially look at a, a consolidated portfolio allocation. That's one thing that I do. The other thing, if you if I want to com- compute returns, I basically have a spreadsheet. Another one, mm-hmm. which just looks at when money was put into the brokerage account, if when money, if any, was taken out of the brokerage account. Mm. And basically all I need to do is take today's debt, look at, you know, basically add up, you know, I've got a couple of different accounts. So I add them up and uh, whatever is the value and then it'll compute my return and I, I get the return that way. So mm. I actually don't use any third-party software. 
uh, for uh, tracking. I, I basically have never found it useful, mm. and I found that you know, it, you know, most of the things that I need to do, I can actually do using a spreadsheet, and I prefer it that way. Nice. I uh, I am lazy, and so I pay. A decent amount of money for share site. Um, we have at the Monthly Fool a kind of reciprocal deal with those guys where we're nice to them, they're nice to us. Not any, we don't provide any services to each other, but we have provided testimonials for each other in the past. Um, so to put that on the record, um, I, I, I use share site. It's, it's not cheap. Uh, I wouldn't be without it because it just makes tax reporting so much easier. Now, you have a more complex kind of um, life with your options and stuff, Doc, so I don't know how it deals with that necessarily. As a, as a shares investor, I'm really happy that all of my records going back to, I think, 2006 or something I've got in there. Um, it's all there. The prices are all there. The buy prices, the cost bases, the tax implications, the dividends. Um, I actually don't – look, we, we love keeping score when it comes to investing, so I really wouldn't want people to keep doing that and be careful or be aware of what you're making, where you're going right, where you're going wrong, what you're learning from that. That's super, super important. I would say, though, don't get too caught up with portfolio tracking. The last thing I actually use it for, mate, I never, ever bother actually going in to look at my portfolio returns as such, right? I know what I paid for the shares I own. I know whether they're up or down. Um, well, no, roughly what I paid for them. Um, it kind of A, it doesn't matter because it's the future that matters, but B, even the fact it does matter is useful. Whether my compound return, I think I gave, told you some of my compound return is, and I won't, I won't do it today. It's market beating, but I won't. It's not about that. Um, I mean, I know what it is because I looked at it the other day for the first time in forever because I was adding some trades. I made some trades last week. Um, so I happened to notice it, but I never, they sent me a weekly email. I never opened it. I just delete it. Not because I, you know, not because they're bad, just because I just, I, it doesn't, you know, a weekly, weekly update in the portfolio is just not very useful for me to help my long term investing. So, Yes, keep score by stock. Understand what you're doing. Don't. I wouldn't pay up for tracking in 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 and of itself. I think that's more easily done. To your point, mate, outside that, I use it for record keeping and for, frankly, to make tax time and, and reporting and just historical data much easier to to maintain. But that's just a personal preference. Value stocks, market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. I'm going to sneak another one in, mate. I know I said I wasn't, but I'm going to because, you know, I'm like that. We want to give extra value, mate, don't we, to our listeners? <laughs> it's, been a long, it's a long podcast. Today. I know, but here's the last one. From Russ. Russ says, hi, Scott and Doc. Love the podcast. I've always wondered if a share is ranked 201st on the ASX and tips over to 200th, will its share price skyrocket because all the ETFs tracking the ASX 200 will be forced to buy it? Are there certain metrics that have become more important because ETFs use them as triggers? Really, really good question. So this is the rise of passive investing. Um, I, I've disagreed with Michael Burry publicly, which is a dangerous thing to do. He thinks passive investing is going to blow up the market. I think it's crazy behavior, crazy talk. In any case, ETFs are bigger. They have to follow. Both Some fund managers have a mandate, so you can only invest in the ASX 200, for example. So a company that goes into the 200 is all of a sudden in their investing universe, and they might want to buy it. An ETF that tracks the 200 has to buy it by definition. If a company is just outside the 200 and then goes inside the 200, now we should say there's not auto, not an automatic process, it's not just the 200 the biggest companies. S&P, the index manager, does quarterly balances where they decide which ones to put in. They're not always purely on size. So don't don't try and front run that. Don't do a screen on the ASX and try and find the 200 first biggest company and then assume that that'll if it gets a little bit bigger, we'll drop in. It doesn't work that way. They make a an arbitrary, partly quantitative, partly qualitative decision about what they want to put in. So that's the first thing. Uh, but Doc, if a company goes from outside the 200 into the 200 or any of the other indices, the ASX 20, the ASX 50, the ASX 300, the All Lords, there's millions of them. Well, there's lots of them. Um, you know, does it matter? Do we care? What should we think about all that stuff? Oh, I mean, we care in the sense that, you know, if some some investor or some, uh, um, you know, fund manager is, is restricted to or their mandate is to invest in a certain uh, 
index or index range, mm-hmm. then uh, you know it matters from that point of view. So basically, right. it, basically what it means is there's more coverage, mm-hmm. more exposure to the stock. Um, going from like you know, let's assume the two hundred. So you know, like it's, it, something is added to the. Uh, to the index if it meets not just the size criteria, but it has to meet like, you know, things like, you know, um, daily trading volume and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like float and all other conditions, right? Profitability and things like that. There's, there's a bunch of things that I think you need to meet uh, to, to get in there. Um, you know, when you're getting in from, let's say, as an example, 201 to 200, I mean, the impact is really minuscule, right? Because your allocation as a percentage of the ETF, something is getting kicked out. And something's getting right. there. I mean, you're probably going to be like, uh, you know, 0.25, point, something like that, you know, at, at that range in, in terms of percentage. It's not meaningfully uh, large to have any impact in terms of um, moving the shares because the ETFs and so on and so forth are buying them. So I think that mm. there's, there's some fallacy to that. Uh, the, the reality, though, is that what it does is it brings it into the universe of others. Mm. And and if you were a, like a small cap investor and you invested in something that was small and then, you know, it went to ASX 300, then went to ASX 200, then it went to ASX, you know, 50, then to ASX 20. What, what basically happened is not, I mean, everything else is a byproduct in the sense that, you know, it went up all the, all the way there because it performed, it did well, it, it was a good company, not because it got there in the first place, right? So I think, you know, there's, there's maybe a reversal of, um, of, I guess the way we are thinking about this, I mean, if a company succeeds, it grows, it grows and it gets into the index, it index, you know, and over time it gets into different indexes and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, I would not try to, I would, I think it's not a good idea to think that you can sort of front run the index and because something's hmm. an index, yeah. um, it's going to rise. It Something's going to rise because the results are good. And if the results are good and the company is growing, then it becomes part of the index. I mean, but then you, it's not because of the index is what I want to mm. emphasize, right? Yeah, right, right. right. Um, yeah. So here's the thing. I'll add that very quickly to say that um, these things are auction markets, but they're only auction markets while the auction's live. Uh, what I mean by that is that so here's the thing. You don't know which company's going to be added. By the time you do, everyone else does at the same time. And the chance of you getting in ahead of any other algorithm or computer to buy that stock to get that bump is almost zero. You can speculate on it, but that's not very useful because you you're simply not going to know. And if everyone else is speculating on it as well, there's probably not a lot of upside in the share price. Once the bump is in, let's say there is a bump. Let's say there's a 2% bump because funds are adding to that stock, right? Because they get told by the S&P it's going in. They all jump in and grab it maybe there's a couple of percent in it. If you are the first one there, you're not going to be because you're not a computer. Um, let's say, but this says something. Once everyone's bought, then the share price falls about, um, you know, it's going to, it, not necessarily fall, but there's no additional upside, right? Because once the auction goes away, once all the heat goes away, all the buyers are in there all of a sudden, then they've bought everything they need. And so the buying pressure goes away again. Now, the price won't necessarily fall back, but arguably it would, right? Like if it's just a short-term bump because of extra demand, and the quality of the valuation is the same in a perfect market. It's not perfect, let's assume. Stock's a dollar. goes to a dollar two for a day while everyone buys it. In theory, if it's always worth a dollar, those, once they've bought it, the new new buyers on day three or day four go back to thinking, well, it's still worth a dollar. So the price in theory would or could go back to the previous level. Um, it's kind of one of those, there's a phrase about options trading, which, Doc, I know you don't agree with, and it's okay, but I'm not bagging options here, but th- that's where it comes from. Picking up pennies in front of a steamroller, right? Like you get a little bit of upside, but if you get rolled over, you get crushed. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily exactly that, but it's a nice kind of analogy when you're referring to this sort of stuff because basically at the end of the day, 
if you know is there a little bit of gain maybe possibly if you get lucky if you're smart if you're fast if the price doesn't fall afterwards if maybe it doesn't fall at all maybe you don't get any benefit um i, I just I, it's a, it's a, it's the right thing like i love the way people ask these questions because they're thinking about stuff which is great mm-hmm. i don't think it's a it's something you can take advantage of as an investor in a reliable way to actually make money from your investing and that's probably the the biggest takeaway from me yeah i think i agree mate it's sunday should we go and uh, do something else yeah do some gardening Mate, I've got so much garden to do. It's summer. I've got lots of veggies planted. Look, garden looking good. I might Instagram right. that later too. Okay. If I think about it, I'll Instagram it on Sunday. I've, I've done my live Instagramming and Facebooking and Twittering. So if you haven't already, check check our feeds. You're just helping Zuckerberg. I said, well, you, you're the one bloody holding up the Facebook with the Apple Watch. Well, but you know, I'm not supporting the <laughs> the evil empire of Zuckerberg. But well, you, can't, you kind of are because your photo's there. So you're... Indirectly helping you make money, mate. No, no, no. I have not gone to any of those, um, yeah, Zuckerberg enterprises. But I'm pushing everyone now to it. So check out Facebook. Check out our Facebook page. Have a look yeah. at Doc and his Apple Watch that he blatantly threw in front of the photo. Look at the Apple Watch. Disgraceful. That wraps us up, mate. Before we go, don't forget, you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, give us some ratings, give us some reviews, tell your friends. Spread the foolish love if you wouldn't mind. Plus, you can get more from us on email, and including some of those special offers to join some of our services like Share Advisor that I run or Extreme Opportunities that Doc runs or Dividend Investor run by Ed Vesely, our friend who, spoiler alert, will be here next week. Woohoo! It's exciting times. Go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.